I am Anthony Fowler. I'm Viola Juda. I'm Will Howell, and this is not another politics podcast. Guys, it's it's Super Bowl season. It's like is it? It is. I know. It's just, so <laughs> Viola. The Super Bowl is like <laughs> right. It's bigger than the Olympics. It's bigger than the World Cup. It's um, and. There's been a, a fair amount of research, and research that has attracted a lot of public attention, that suggests that you know these tribal uh, allegiances that people have to their to their college sports teams bear upon all kinds of things. They, they bear upon you know how productive people are in their work, whether their marriages hang together, and how and uh, who they vote for. Yeah, so I know nothing about Super Bowl. I don't know who played this Sunday and who won, and we are not going to spoil it here. Uh, but but I know a little bit about soccer, and and I've heard those stories that if Argentina wins the Super, uh, not the Super Cup, <laughs> the World Cup, <laughs> the World Cup. Yeah, if Argentina go. wins the World Cup, then suddenly Argentinians are super happy and they are more productive, and all the good things happen. You know, those stories don't seem completely crazy to me. What what is true? Is it true that if a team from a particular place wins, then all good things follow? And is it true that that has any consequence on uh, on elections in particular? Yeah. So Anthony, come on now. You have been involved in a a whole a whole a prolonged exchange about precisely this topic, <laughs> trying to make sense of the effects of football games, right? College football games on electoral outcomes. Um, and this is involved research, for the most part, that you're responding to, where other people have come out and, and laid, made the claim that there is a, a robust relationship between the two. Um, and, and you've suggested that the findings are not quite so robust. What is that? What, who, who's involved and what, what does that, that exchange look like? So there, uh, there was a paper in 2010 by uh, Andrew Healy, Neil Mahotra, and Cecilia Mo in a PNAS, a, a, a prominent science journal, that essentially made this claim that college football games affect voting behavior in U.S. elections. And in particular, if your local team wins, then the incumbent candidates for governor, the incumbent party in gubernatorial, senatorial, and presidential races uh, perform better in those elections. And the idea, I think the idea they have in mind is something like voters, they're not really informed, they're not paying really close attention, they don't have a good sense of whether or not the governor is doing a good job or not. But your local college football team wins the game, you're in a good mood, you're happy when you go into the voting booth, you can't quite figure out, are you happy because your team just won, or are you happy because, you know, the governor's doing a good job, and so you end up rewarding the governor for this thing that was clearly out of the control of the governor. This, you know, there's at least this implicit implication with a lot of these papers that um, this, is, this is evidence that voters are pretty incompetent, they're irrational, and democracy might not work very well. Surely, if, if people are so fickle as to be influenced by things like college football games, you know, we can think of them as flipping coins in the voting booth and electoral selection and incentives and accountability. None of that, none of that stuff really works. And, you know, all of this is terrible for democracy. That's basically the, the implication that a lot of people draw from this literature. So their core findings are that in the games that immediately precede, the game or games that immediately precede an election, when the home team wins that correlates with a slight uptick, one or two percentage points, in the vote share for the incumbent running for office. That's right. That's right. It's technically the incumbent party running for office. So they, they, they don't just look at incumbents. They look at all elections and they say the incumbent party does better when the local team wins. That's the finding. And so it's not, just so, just so we get it clear, it's not, I mean, what I think about, my wife is a huge University of Oklahoma fan. 
I understand a little something like it personally about these mood swings on the basis of <laughs> the outcomes of football games. We experience it in our house, but I'll say that the mood swings vary as a function of who they're playing against or what their record is over the course of a whole season. It isn't just the latest win or loss. There's no attention to that, right? There's no attention to how the team is going generally or whether or not they were supposed to have won or lost given who the competition was. It's just this the game before an election, when I win, that reasonably predicts vote share, full stop. That's right. They look at, they're looking at the home county of the team so your so your wife will is not in the sample. Oh. She's not. She's not. Yeah. So, but, but she'll be disappointed to learn this. <laughs> and you're right. I mean, this is we're talking about games happening uh, typically in you know late October, early November. So you know, in the middle of the season, they need not be the most important games of the season. Need not be against rivalries or anything like that. They might be even in some cases inconsequential games for you know season outcomes or things like that. But they're, they're, that's that's the focus here. Okay. So we don't know exactly why they find this effect, they have their preferred explanation. It's not the only explanation possible. It seems like the, the design was not really set up to distinguish between different explanations. Do we buy this result? Is it really true? So I, I should say that this actually is a pretty interesting design. I think they actually have a pretty compelling design here with this study. Often you do see studies that get lots of news and you kind of look at the study and you're like, okay, this is obviously not very good, right? And this is not the case for this particular study. This was not the case where it was just a sloppy study and it was obvious that there's some bias here. And if, if only they had controlled for the right variables or if they only they had done a better job, this result would go away. And they have, you know, what we would call a difference in differences design. So they're accounting for the fact that Alabama usually wins and, uh, you know, there are other teams that usually lose in the sample. You know, they're accounting for the fact that, you know, some places are more likely to vote for the incumbent party than other places normally. And they're looking at sort of deviations from the norm and they're seeing these seem to correspond with incumbent vote shares in the way you would expect. So if you just look at the study, it's there's no obvious like, oh, here's an obvious source of bias or if only they had done this differently. So it's actually a pretty it seems like a compelling design in that sense. So why do you sound why, why do you sound skeptical? <laughs> I mean, yeah, nevertheless, I mean, so, so Pablo Montagnus and I, who wrote a follow-up study, we were skeptical, not because the authors did anything wrong, but because we were just sort of, one, we think ex-ante, it's pretty unlikely that college football games would have such a large effect on voting behavior. So we were just ex-ante skeptical, not because the evidence was bad, just because we think it's unlikely for there to be a real effect you might have just gotten unlucky and gotten a false positive by chance, right? That's the kind of thing we were worried about. It's kind of an interesting case where we're skeptical of the result, but there's nothing obvious that the authors did wrong. We can't do an independent replication. Normally, if you were skeptical, you'd say, let's just rerun the study, but we can't go back and rerun the last 50, 60 years of elections and college football games. So what can we do instead? Let's try to test additional hypotheses that should hold if the finding is genuine. If it's true that college football games really do affect elections, what else should we expect to see? And so we started thinking through some of those things. One of the things we expected was we should see bigger effects in places where people care more about college football. The effect should be bigger in places like Alabama and Auburn and Oregon, and the effect should not be very big for, for a college like Northwestern. And it turns out we actually find the opposite. If anything, their result is driven by cases where people care less about college football. Their results are driven primarily by places like Northwestern and Boston College, where most people in those counties don't even know the teams are playing. 
just out of curiosity, how do you classify counties into counties where people care about football and where people don't care about football? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. So we actually utilized some data from other people who had aggregated data from Facebook likes. So on Facebook, you can you can say whether you like your local college football team, and they essentially just counted up you know what share of, of Facebook users in every county say that they like the local college football team. And as you as you would expect, like Cook County is extremely low. It's like, you know, single digit, you know, percent of people even even are paying attention to Northwestern. If you if you went to if you went to the home counties of Alabama and Auburn and LSU and so forth, you get you get pretty high interest. And so that's the main measure that we use. It, it turns out you essentially get nothing in the high interest places and all of the results are driven by the low interest places. So that was one sign to us that this, this is likely just a false positive. This is likely not a genuine effect because you're not seeing it in the places you'd expect to see it. And we do a number of other things like that in our study. We also ask, you know, if this is real, we should expect that it should be greater in places where the incumbent is actually running for re-election as opposed to the incumbent retired. We don't find anything there. We also look at other counties that don't have college football teams, and we ask, you should expect to see a bigger effect in the home county of the college football team rather than in other counties throughout the state. And it turns out you actually get the same result if you look at other counties throughout the state, not just the home county of the team. You know, the closest thing you can think of as an independent replication, we look at we look at the NFL. In the NFL, you can do the same kind of thing. You could ask, you know, does the local county of the NFL team, do they vote more for the incumbent? If anything, if it's there for college football, you should probably see it for the NFL too. And we actually get a pretty precise zero in the case of the NFL. So looking across all of those different results, our conclusion is that even though this is an interesting study, even though the design's there's nothing wrong with the design. There's no obvious bias in the design. Our concern is that this was probably just a chance false positive. You can get this from time to time. You, you have a perfectly good, you design a perfectly good experiment, you get a weird result from time to time. And, and that's what we think happened here. Is there anything to the story in your view that things that suddenly make you feel really good about how your life is going, right? I just, I got news that, you know, it's all about cotton candy and jello pudding pops all day long, right before an election, um, has nothing to do with the incumbent, that nonetheless somebody might go to the election and re- reward the incumbent party. I mean, we can say that this is a, that this is a, this particular finding is a false positive, but behind it is a, a kind of more foundational story that's being told about voting behavior. There's some plausibility to that idea. I mean, I'm sure that kind of thing is relevant for lots of people in elections. You might say, you know, things are going really well. I got a raise this year and my family's doing really well. And, you know, things, things are going great. And it's hard to know, like, how much, how much credit should I give to the president or the governor for that kind of thing? I don't really know. But on the margin, maybe I give a little bit of credit because it's hard for me. To, I'm not paying really close attention. And I don't fully understand how the policy decisions made by the governor affect my life. But, I, but if it seems like things are going really well in the state, then probably maybe all else equal, I'm inclined to vote for the incumbent as opposed for the cha- as opposed to the challenger. So that makes sense. The question is, but that's an instance. But that's an instance where we can draw a connection between whether or not I got a job or whether or not I got a raise and the state of the economy and the kinds of investments that governors and senators and presidents are making. Um, no, like there, we, you can tell an accountability story in ways that's harder to when it comes to. Shark attacks in football games. It's hard, yeah, I think you, it would have to be, I mean, you'd have to imagine that the voters are really not good at, at, forming, at forming their beliefs if they, if they can't distinguish between the governor doing a good job and they're just happy because their local football team won. I mean, I mean it could be, you know, in general, in general I, can, I, I understand the problem of like, I'm in a good mood and it's hard for me to know how much of my good mood is attributable to the football versus other stuff. But it seems 
pretty unlikely ex ante that there could be even one in 100 people or one in 200 people who would change their vote in a gubernatorial or presidential election just because their local football team won. That seems pretty unlikely. I think if that were true, that would actually make me worry that elections were, you know, like coin flips, where if, if there's one in 200 people that are changing based on the college football game, then there's probably another 1% of people that are changing based on whether their significant other was nice to them, and then another 1%, you know, and so I think you really would worry about the health of democracy if it was the case, but it just seems, it just seems ex ante pretty unlikely to me. You know, to me, it wouldn't be shocking if the result were actually true. You know, I do try to make a connection between how I feel, how happy I am, and who is in, in office. And on average, you know, the happier I am, the more likely it is that the person who is in office did something right. And, and I think, you know, we're complex human beings, so we just ask ourselves how happy I am without really trying to differentiate between the sources of happiness. I don't know whether we can really do that. You know, at the moment when you ask me how happy you are, why are you so happy? I will give you some answer, but it's actually very hard to disentangle why I'm happy, why I'm happy. So perhaps there's a different, a little bit more rational <laughs> mechanism. I wasn't planning to vote. The incumbent is doing fine. All is equal. I would vote for the incumbent. But because there's the incumbent, uh, uh, incumbent's advantage, why should I show up and vote? Uh, anyway, he's going to win, I expect. And now suddenly I have this energy and I want to meet people and I want to talk about the recent game and where do I meet people? I go and vote. So I could see how the turnout could be affected. So if I were you, I wouldn't have such a strong prior that this result is wrong. So I'm very glad that you actually had this prior and, and uh, went and did your study. But I do completely buy what comes out of your study. It seems to me that the fact that we don't find this differential effect in, in counties that actually care about college football, that, that seems like a killer evidence that the result was just a false positive. I mean, this is another weird story to tell, but it would be something like either I'm really excited by virtue of having won and want to be in conversation with, you know, my members of the community, or I'm totally devastated, right? And I just can't get out of bed because I can't believe that the home team lost. And the, the kinds of people who experience those things correlate with support for the incumbent party, right? You have to tell some, it's not that people are updating or changing their minds about who to vote for. It's just that people's willingness to go out into the world are affected by this and that their willingness differentially correlates with. Well, of course, we know things like that happen. I mean, we know that, you know, whether it's raining or snowing on the election day affects how many people show up to vote. Um, but those, are, those aren't big effects. Those, are, those effects are actually comparable to these. So you'd have to imagine that the turnout effect of the football game is comparable to the effect of it raining or snowing on election day, which seems unlikely. And then, of course, that does change. Too, but it turns out that the, the people who are kind of sensitive to the rain and the snow are a little bit more democratic than the people who, the people who are going to vote anyway. And so there could be a small partisan effect of that kind of thing. So it wouldn't be shocking if things like, you know, if little random things like that in the world do have tiny marginal effects on elections. But I'd be surprised if the effects were large enough that we thought, oh, this completely undermines electoral accountability. But the saga continues, like the research saga continues. Right? You gave us the first exchange, but then there, there's a subsequent exchange as well, where they extend the data and reanalyze the data in a variety of ways and, 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 and reconsider the findings. Yes, there's a new paper coming out in the Journal of Politics by Matthew Graham, Greg Huber, Neil Mahotra, and Cecilia Moe. And they've collected some new data and done some new analyses. And they're claiming that they were right after all, essentially. They're saying, you know, we collected some new data, we added some new data in, we ran a bunch of tests, 
And we found essentially the same thing that they found before in the previous study. The results are a little bit weaker, but overall, uh, the results support this idea that college football games and, and other kinds of irrelevant events affect elections. And do, what do we make out of that? <laughs> did, they, <laughs> did they look at all into the sort of analysis that you and Pablo did? So I would say no. I would say their paper essentially ignores our study. Of, I mean, I'm sure our study inspired them to write this paper because they, because they thought this was still a live controversy, but they essentially ignore the arguments we make. So they don't actually address like these additional tests that we conduct in our paper. One thing they never do is they never actually just show you what do you get if you look at the completely new data. They say, we added in, so we took, we, we, we know this old regression from 2010. We know what that finds. And they're like, we can add in a few new years of data and we can pool, the, pool all the years together and we can see, oh, look, the results got a little bit weaker, but they're still in the expected direction and they're still mostly significant. And so they kind of stop and declare victory. And that's, you know, as you can imagine, a very strange thing to have done because that's what you would have expected to find even if the original result was a false positive. And the new data, the new independent evidence would be, let's look at the new years of data that weren't in the original study and see if those also support this hypothesis or not. And that's something they don't actually show. Those are 13 to 14 years, right? Uh, where they bring their previous time series up to 2020? 2016, yeah. So we, it's about 10 years, of, 10 years of new data. 2007 to 2016 is the new, or the new years of data. Okay. Okay. Um, when you look separately at those data, what do you find? Um, if anything, they kind of go in the wrong direction. They have 18 different tests that they conduct with, with the data. And so we just, so Pablo Montagnus and I, we went back to this data, we, we analyzed it ourselves, and we, we, we ran each of those 18 tests, but just separately for the new data, the actual independent data. And of those 18 tests, only four out of 18 even go in the expected direction. So 14 out of 18 of those tests actually go in the wrong direction, the one that you wouldn't have hypothesized. So if anything, the results suggest that, you know, if uh, the college football team is hurting the incumbents, but obviously, obviously there's not a lot of new data, so there's not a whole lot to go on there. But if anything, what little new data there is doesn't seem to support this hypothesis at all. They look at the data, I mean, as you say, in they run sort of 18 different models and they have these series of steps that they recommend that one takes when reevaluating old studies um, and to see whether or not they, uh, the, the findings are robust. Is it, is it just a matter of extending the time series or, or do they make other moves that, that make sense to do when, 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 when reevaluating contentious claims? Potentially. So, so you're, you're right that they don't, they don't exactly replicate the previous study. What they, what they do is they say, let's think about what the right tests are to conduct. Let's pre-register those tests and we'll write them down even before we collect the new data. And then we're going to rerun all those new tests. I think that's a great thing to do. That's, that's a fantastic thing to do. I would love to see more examples of this. There's a, you know, there's an open question or there's a debate in political science. There's something we're not sure of. We're, we're about to collect some data. Let's pre-register the actual tests we're going to run. And then we'll pre-commit to these being the tests we run. And whatever we find, we're going to report, we're going to report those results. So in this particular case, I think it turns out to not be all that compelling in that one, we already kind of knew what the tests were going to give us because the tests that they propose are essentially the same as the ones from the 2010 study. So, so they're not really new tests and they're not really pre-registered tests. And second, like I discussed, they never actually show you the tests just on the new independent data. They pool the new data with the old data. So they're never actually showing you completely new independent evidence. But in principle, the, the basic idea of let's collect new data, let's pre-register analyses, that makes perfect sense. And I think that's a great thing for lots of people to do. So beyond... 
Yeah, I mean, you do more in your response than simply break out the data into the old sample and the new sample and show that the new sample actually, the point estimates point in the opposite direction. What else is in play here? Yeah, so we try to do something interesting with, with our paper. Let's use, let's use this as an opportunity to figure out there's a little bit of new data. There's not a lot of new data, but there's a little bit of new data. What can we learn? Can we actually adjudicate between the possibility? One possibility is there really is a genuine effect of college football on elections. Another possibility is it was just a chance false positive. So how can we possibly try to adjudicate between these possibilities, especially when there's only so much new data here? And so we do a bunch of simulations. And I think, I mean, I, I think these are interesting and I hope that other people will find that this same kind of simulation is useful for lots of other projects as well. So we say, let's do one set of simulations that simulates a world where there's no effect of college football. Let's take the real data on college football and elections. One thing we can do is we can sort of randomize, we can randomly permute the actual game outcomes. We can say, let's pretend we know that Alabama actually won this one against Auburn. Let's pretend that they didn't win it. And we can, we can try different iterations of the world. And we actually use the betting market. So from the betting markets, we have ex-ante beliefs about the probability that Alabama was going to win that game against Auburn. Say it was 0.75. We'll rerun a simulation where they win that game 75% of the time. And we'll do a random draw for every game. And we'll say, okay, so the world could have played out all these different ways. And let's re, let's, let's, let's re-simulate it. And in that world, there really shouldn't be, we know there shouldn't be a correlation between the game outcomes and the voting behavior because the game outcomes are actually randomly, randomly assigned. You know, what would we expect, what would we expect these estimates to look like in a world in which there really was no effect? And so one thing we can do is, for example, we can say, let's suppose that there's no effect, but the old data gave us what looked like a real effect that was consistent with the old 2010 study. How likely is it that the new pooled estimates would be as large as they are just by chance, right? In this world in which there's no effect. So that's the basic idea. And then we can similarly assimilate a world in which there's a real effect. We can say, suppose there's a real effect that's similar to the, the estimates reported in the 2010 study. The, the idea there is almost the same. We randomly permute the game outcomes, but now when we randomly permute the game outcomes, we actually tweak the election results along with the game outcomes so that we force there to be a known effect of a, of a particular size, a particular magnitude. And so we can ask questions like, here are the results we got with all this, with all this pooled data. Are they closer to the, the data? Are they closer to the results we would have expected in a world in which there was no effect? Or are they closer to the results we would have expected in a world where there's an effect similar to those reported in the 2010 study? And we can actually, I mean, in general, the finding is that the results are much more consistent with a world in which there's no effect. And we can actually statistically reject the possibility that there is an effect consistent with the original 20, 2010 study. If it's the case that there really was an effect as strong as the original study, the estimate should have gotten stronger as we added in new data, but the estimates actually got weaker. And it's actually very unlikely that they would have gotten weaker by as much as they did if there really was a genuine effect consistent with the original study. So that, that actually, in some ways, maybe that surprised us. Our initial inclination was there's so, there's so little new data, there's not a whole lot we can learn from this little, bit, this little bit of new data. But it turns out there's actually enough data that you can statistically reject the effect sizes reported in the original study. Hey, if you're getting a lot out of the research that we discussed on this show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show that you should check out. It's called Capital Isn't. Capital Isn't uses the latest economic thinking to zero in on the ways that capitalism is, and more often than not isn't, working today. From the debate over how to distribute a vaccine to the morality of a wealth tax, Capitalism clearly explains how capitalism can go wrong and what we can do about it. Listen to Capitalism, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network.
So I think I'm convinced there's no effect of uh, college football on elections. But I want to think a little bit about the entire purpose of this exercise. You've mentioned earlier in, in our conversation that presumably there are some random events that affect elections. So you mentioned weather, rain, and presumably the effects of those events are also not large. Like, su suppose there are those events. It's not college football, it's something else. How important it is for the health of democracy and how important it is for us to understand what those effects are and, and how, how should we worry? I don't know what your thoughts are on, on that. I have, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on that. And so I can stop me so that I don't submit it too long. <laughs> oh, um, I will. <laughs> so I think, I think, it, I think one thing is that the answer probably depends a little bit on the nature of the particular thing, the particular event that affects the election. There are, as we, as we actually discussed in a previous episode, we actually, we, maybe we had a pandemic episode where we briefly mentioned the paper by Ashworth, Bennett, Mesquita, and Friedenberg, which made the point that lots of events that seem irrelevant are actually politically relevant in the sense that even though, you know, there could be like a big tornado that comes through, and of course the tornado was not the fault of the governor, but the tornado changes the information that we have. It changes what we learn about the governor. It could, it could be we learn more about the governor because we can see how they respond to the crisis. Maybe we're, we, were, we learn less about how the governor would have handled other things that weren't related to tornado. So, but there, there could actually be quite rational reasons why voters change their voting behavior in response to certain things that seem like irrelevant events. In the case of college football games, I don't think you can easily tell a story like that. I think if it's the case that college football games do affect elections, that probably does suggest that voters are probably pretty incompetent. And if it's the case that one, one or two percent of voters are changing their votes based on college football games, I would also worry that it must be there's maybe even even more voters that are changing their votes based on other seemingly irrele equally irrelevant events, such that you really would worry about the electoral selection. We also, of course, read, we discussed on this podcast, the paper by Ashworth and Buena Mesquita on whether or not voter rationality and voter information is actually good for voter welfare. That was, that was kind of an interesting, complicated discussion where, on the one hand, more irrational voting or, or more kind of uninformed voting, on the one hand, is bad for selection in that if there's clearly a better candidate, we're less likely to elect a better candidate, but it could actually be good for incentives. It could actually make the governor work harder because he knows that there's going to be more irrational or uninformed voters out there and he or she has to work extra hard to try to please those voters and increase their chances of re-election. So the implications for voter welfare are even ambiguous, even then, if we grant that there are these irrelevant events that affect elections. But I still think if it were true, I'm, I'm still coming back to the view that if it were true that lots of voters were voting based on college football games, I think we'd have a pretty good reason to worry about the health of the democracy. And I think it's somewhat reassuring that it seems like they don't. Well, so, so uh, if we take the selection and the incentive provision part out of the, of the question, if we think about that the elections are only uh, about expressing the preferences of the society, like one thing that I was thinking about is that those random events are likely to make a difference only if the election is close to begin with. And if election is close to begin with, does it really make such a big difference who wins? Of course, it makes a big difference who wins in terms of you know how the history evolves. We know Bush versus Gore, but but in terms of some sort of normative uh, criterion that we have that we want the elections to express the will of the society, I don't know. I, it's not obvious to me that that we should worry so much about those irrelevant events if their effect is you know one to two percentage points. So this is in the spirit of thinking about should the graduate students pursue this kind of you know line of research and look at other irrelevant events? Is is this something that that we should really worry about too much? 
I could imagine somebody making the argument that these kinds of studies tell us to what extent are voters is voting behavior based on important, you know, considered enlightened thought as opposed to just kind of, you know, the you know, very fickle and fleeting fleeting things, which could have implications for, say, the potential success of a demagogue or the potential success of a populist or something, right? If if one candidate just happens to be gregarious and good looking and charming and tall, and they say, I'm gonna promise everybody free lollipops. Is that the is that the candidate that's going to win as opposed to the candidate who's you know maybe a little less gregarious and attractive but is actually more competent and less corrupt and so on? Um, obviously, there's not a lot of direct evidence. So there's no direct evidence on that kind of thing from studies of college football. And maybe you should say the the aspiring political scientist should work on those questions more directly. But I could imagine that being relevant if it's the case that voters are so fickle that they they just vote based on how the pancakes came out that morning. You might worry that that would lend itself to a different kind of politics and different kinds of winning candidates than than in a world in which voters based on uh, their considered and enlightened thoughts about, you know, genuine values and, and, and the quality of candidates and so forth. Yes, but no one is comparing those two scenarios. No, we have a lot of evidence that people do respond to information. We had some episodes uh, on this podcast showcasing research showing that. And the effects of the papers that claim to show an effect of an irrelevant event are actually pretty small. So, so yes, sometimes they might affect who wins, who loses, but they are going to have an effect only in a situation in which, based on the information from other sources or political preferences, people are already, uh, you know, that it's already almost a tie. And in that situation, sure, on some sort of, you know, principled level, we would like still the preferences to be reflected and the person with one extra vote or one extra supporter to be the president. But but in terms of the consequences and some sort of social, I don't know, justice, <laughs> cosmic justice, it does not seem to be making such a big of a difference. So I think I think I think the bar is higher. I think the bar is no longer to go and demonstrate, hey, people react to weather, hey, people react to shard attacks, but it's somehow having a deeper understanding of to what extent really voters, to, to which degree voters are really irrational, and to which degree this translates into bad outcomes for the for the society. I agree. I agree with all of that. I actually think there's a big disconnect in the political science literature. I think there's one corner of the world of people who are studying things like aggregate election outcomes and representation and accountability. And they're finding very often we cover them on the show that things are working, maybe not perfectly, but they work reasonably well. Like voters do respond to the ideologies of the candidates. They respond to things like economic performance. They respond to things like corruption scandals, like in all of the reasonable ways you would expect. And yet, you know, in another corner of political science, there's people who don't talk to each other. And these other people over here are studying things like, oh, look, we looked at a bunch of survey data and we saw, we found that a lot of these voters look like they're uninformed. They look like they're irrational. They're hyper-partisan. They're fickle. They're stupid, et cetera. Those, those two groups never talk to each other and they don't ever actually stop to say like, hey, how, how, can, how can all of this be true at once? And one explanation is that a lot of those other studies are actually overstated, that a lot of those maybe aren't as reliable as we thought. Maybe the voters really aren't as stupid and irrational and uninformed and hyper-partisan as we think. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that maybe, you know, as you're suggesting, Viola, maybe there are a bunch of, you know, there are a bunch of these irrational, uninformed, hyperpartisan voters, but they kind of cancel each other out and they turn out to not be that consequential in elections. And when you aggregate all of their preferences together, the electorate as a whole still still behaves as if it's a reasonable voter. I'm going to put my money on that last line of reasoning. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's fantastic to think that some people 
on election day have a bad day and then they're therefore less likely to show up or they had a fight with their kids and you know so they spend less time filling out the ballot i think i'm with you both that these papers that say oh i here's this curious thing that's going to show a small effect on electoral outcomes or that i can, that i can trace through to the extent that they're able to do so therefore right democracy is teetering at the abyss and we're about to lose it all seem misplaced. There's this other piece that actually kind of troubles me is that it becomes like the incentives that it creates for our graduate students. That, that to the extent that finding this curious thing, right, that what do you know, this thing that you thought had nothing to do with politics in fact systematically bears upon the electoral fortunes of one person or another, we get rewarded for that, right? Like those papers you can publish and that those are the things that get media attention. It encourages people to go out in search of you know, the craziest thing you can possibly find, rather than asking the kind of foundational questions that have been asked for a long time, but that probably are central to actual voting behavior. Yeah. And, and you know, if the re result of the original study were true, I would say it's still a fun paper. I mean, it's fun to know that college football affects elections, even if that doesn't have any bearing on our worry about the state of the, of democracy. It's, it's fun. It's fun to know that. But I think uh, you have to have your priors. If you're searching for these curious findings, then your priors should be, well, most of them should, should not be true. So then you should be a little bit more careful and you should do this kind of analysis and this kind of thinking that Anthony and Pablo did in their paper. You should say, well, you know, I have this finding. It's very strange. <laughs> it's very curious. It would be fun to, if it's true. But let me think about what else should be true if this finding is true. And, and you really have to subject this finding to a lot of scrutiny and perhaps even more scrutiny than you would otherwise. I think a general problem with this whole literature is that when, once you're in, once you're gone down this road of like, let's test for some crazy behavioral irrational thing, all bets are off. Whatever you find, you can always ex post say, aha, that's exactly what we would have expected to find. And you can tell a fun story. They did, they did an experiment in the middle of the NCAA basketball tournament. They essentially randomly varied whether they told people about how their favorite, their local team just performed in a recent game. And their finding, is perhaps the opposite of what you might have thought if mood was driving things. So you might have thought that if everything is all about mood, I tell you, hey, your local team just won, you might you might be inclined to say, oh, then I like the president more, right? And it turns out they actually find the opposite. They find it's not a really strong result. It's, it's, it's kind of weak statistically, but they actually find, if anything, being reminded that your team just won actually decreases your approval of the president. And their interpretation of this is, oh, what's going on is you were in a good mood because your team won. So you, you increased your approval of the president. Then I reminded you that your team won. And then you said to yourself in a somewhat rational way, you said, oh, that's right. I'm in a good mood because my team won, not because the president's doing a good job. And so you lower your presidential approval. And so they say that also speaks to the mechanism. They say, this is further evidence that it's mood. Now, of course, I don't find that all that convincing. And honestly, if I had to guess, I would guess that when they initially ran that experiment, they were hoping to find the opposite result. They were hoping to find that I tell you about your team just having won, you increase approval of the president. That would be more consistent with their hypothesis. But cleverly, they were able to argue that actually, like this opposite result turns out to support our hypothesis as well. Um, so <laughs> that's another problem, which is how do you actually have any credible result when there were a million things you could have tested for? And whatever you find, you can ex post say that that's what you expected to find. And it can kind of sound convincing, even though you don't really have any rigorous theory that's constraining what you're testing for or, or, or generating any compelling predictions. Because the whole idea here is that voters are irrational and they can be irrational in a million different ways. 
Well, so how far are we going to take that? Like, do you want to do we want to shut down the enterprise? That is, <laughs> this is not where it's at. This is not where we should be focusing our energies. I don't think I want to say I want to go as far as to say, well, let's not look at irrelevant events at all and people's reaction to that. But but I think I would say our experience with those studies and especially with, with this uh, exchange on football and the effect of football on elections uh, should tell us that, that we should think a little bit harder about what is the goal of the next study. What is it so important about this irrelevant event that I'm going to study that, that justifies me studying it? Is this going to change our thinking about the health of democracy and the value of elections? If it's just yet another finding where something irrelevant changes the election outcomes by one percentage point, is it really going to affect our thinking about elections? Uh, those are the questions I think everyone should, should sort of answer to themselves before they embark on yet another study of this sort. Is that your bottom line? That is my bottom line. Thank you very much. <laughs> Wasn't it great? What's your bottom line? Well, I'll go because I think we need to give Anthony the final word, the, the bottom, bottom line. So I too am at once convinced and, and I'm, I'm trying to like not root for the home team here. Speaking of, you know, here, here we, our fellow podcast um, host here is, um, has been evaluating these data and evaluating them carefully. And I'm, I'm persuaded by his, his findings um, and that they're, there isn't a, a real effect to be had when it comes to these college football games um, that speaks to anything foundational about our understanding about how sports bears upon the emotional states of would-be voters that then translate that into alterations in behavior. So, so there's that. I'm convinced of, of the finding itself. And also I'm troubled that we, as a discipline, have such, a, such strong incentives to chase down those um, kinds of effects. Because... Uh, when you find something that's really surprising, I mean, the study of elections has been going on for decades and there, there's just reams and reams of study, the effects of partisanship and the economy, these like foundational things. And so now if you want to make a career as a young scholar, there are powerful incentives to go out and find the oddities and to lift them up and to proclaim their relevance. Um, and you're like more likely to get those things published and more likely to get media attention for that. And, and I think that's, that's troubling. And I hope we, we, we resist that, um, because uh, it's just going to require a whole lot of uh, cleaning up downstream. It's going to, it's going to, we need Anthony to be working on papers that are not just about showing the, the craziness of, of one particular finding um, and to be exploring more, more foundational matters. So, yeah. So bottom line, I mean, you know, I, I do not think college football games meaningfully affect elections. Maybe, you know, maybe they, maybe there are a few people out there who are affected by college football games, but I don't think there's a large effect. I don't think, I don't think these are reliable results. I think that's probably true for a lot of the papers that are claiming, oh, we found, we found evidence that there's some relevant event that affects elections. That's, that's what I think about shark attacks. That's what I think about a lot of these other, these other studies as well. As a discipline, you know, how do we move forward? How do we do a better job? One thing I like to tell my students is you should probably not be even collecting the data and working on a project unless you would be interested in any result. So if, yes. if, 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 you were, if, you were, if you were collecting data and running a regression in the hopes that you find one result and it'd be really exciting if you did, but if a null result, nobody would care about it or a negative result, nobody would care whatsoever, that's probably not a good project to work on. Um, in the sense, one reason for that is that we just won't have a lot of faith in the result, even when you find the positive result, because 
you could have tried a hundred different things and you only reported the one thing that turned out to be exciting and surprising and statistically significant, and we just don't have any faith in those results. And so that would be my one bit of advice to like an aspiring social scientist would be to ask interesting questions where we care about the answer no matter what you find. That's obviously not what this literature is doing. Nobody would have cared about the paper that said, it turns out college football games don't have a very large effect on elections. There's the downside to that advice, which is that maybe we miss out on some really exciting, surprising findings. Maybe there are some crazy things out there that we will never discover if that's our rule of thumb. And we should have to think about like what, you know, what should we do in those situations? And maybe the answer is we still are willing to explore those things, but we have a much, much higher bar for evidence. We have to be really skeptical and there has to be really compelling evidence. And it's not just one regression that's significant. It's 10 different tests and so forth. And, and, uh, and, and whoever is incentivized to work on those, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, if you really want to make extraordinary claims, you've got to have extraordinary evidence. So I think that's, I think that's my bottom line on those kinds of things. And I think this general literature has gone astray and it probably has gone astray because of the career incentives, because it's fun to find, it's fun to write the paper about how the voters are stupid or irrational and college football games matter. Of course, it's really, it's really fun to talk about. And the New York Times really wants to cover that. And it's not nearly as interesting to like write a paper about like, pension debt and, you know, an actual, like, you know, the actual important stuff that we really, that really matters, but nevertheless, like, you know, it's just not as, it's just not as sexy and exciting and newsworthy. So, um, so the career incentives are messed up. I don't know how to change that, but I think we as a field can at least do a better job in deciding, you know, um, is this the kind of result that we're going to be excited about and we're going to, we're going to publish in prominent outlets or is this the kind of result where we're going to say, okay, let's be a little skeptical. Let's, let's push on this a little bit more. Like it kind of bumps me out. Like I see that manifest in people where they get so, you won't believe what I just found because they, they can see the, you know, the accolades that are right around the corner. And that then you look over at something like psychology as a field and what those sensibilities have done and the replication crisis there and the failure to, for knowledge to meaningfully accumulate. Like, and so that you don't even have like a, a, a base of robust empirical findings from which to build. Yeah, it's a problem. Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodup. Thanks for listening. <laughs>